0: You know, we're, we're just, we're heading to Blade Runner, where there's going to be the people who live down here in the acid rain, and then there's going to be the people who live off world and have AI robots for slaves. You know, that's where we're heading. I grew up in a rough part of town, but I remember a buddy of mine, he got jumped by three girls from the South Boston Projects, right? Now we were all tough guys, blah, 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 blah. And he got jumped on a subway platform by three girls from South Boston They beat the shit out of him. And he came back and he told us, and there was no shame to it. We weren't all like, you got beat up by a girl. We were like, hey man, you're lucky you're alive. You know what I mean? Like, I have zero ego when it comes to whatever it takes to be a good writer. I was never trying to become a writer so that people could pat me on the back for being a writer. And that's the difference you see, usually I see in great students. Great students want to know how to get better. Bad students want to know how to get published.
1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams.
2: And I am Natalie Jamieson.
1: And we are both hugely excited. Well, we're always excited about who we have on because they're always amazing writers. But this guy, um, I'll level with you now. I can't believe he said yes.
2: Can
1: you not? No, no. Were, you,
2: were you kind of like overexcited inside? Cause if you weren't, that didn't come across at all. You're very measured throughout oh, this conversation.
1: Good, good. Oh, well, that's good. Um, yeah, I was super, super, yeah, extremely overexcited simply because, uh, Dennis Lehane has been not just now it has been for probably a 20 year period. One of the best writers in the world across novels and cinema and TV and so you'd have seen more recently, you'd have seen Blackbird, which we talk about in this podcast episode, uh, with Taryn Edgerton, which is terrific, which he basically was showrunner on. Um, he's going to do Firebug with Taryn Edgerton about um, an arson investigator turned arsonist, which is, again, a true story. Um, Small Mercies, which is the new novel we discussed here, that's also going to go to Apple TV+. Plus. But, I mean, in the intro that you hear in a moment, the actual real one with all the facts and figures, you'll be blown away by... Famous movie directors who've taken his work and adapted it for the screen. And I just think, um, when this novel just uh, we weren't so the backstory to this is I got a preview of it on Net Galley, right? Which is like a preview service for journals. This was never in our plans for this season, was it? Dennis Lehane had never been spoken about. And as soon as I read it, I remember messaging you from Holiday going, You've got to read this. It's just different gear. And it's easily my book of the year. It's like way ahead of anything else that I've read this year. And so when we put a cheeky bid in, and he said yes, I'm like, oh, this guy's got time for him, you know. And it's not like a, it's not a status thing. It's just because he's so busy. Mm. And also, if you do a quick search, he hasn't done many interviews around this. I, think he did, I saw him do CBS in the states, but he hasn't done loads. And it could be yeah. his last book. I don't think it will be. Somehow, I think something will. Don't you? I got the sense from him that he's what what he doesn't want to do is do another one off the conveyor belt.
2: No, because this one came from. Well, again, I don't want to spoil it because you're going to hear it all in a second, so you'll get to hear that. Um, I just want to say so I'm not in my usual setup today in case the sound, um, is any different. If any real audio files out there notice mm. anything, um, I am you're on actually, location, I'm on location. I'm actually at BAFTA HQ recording this, ah. um, in the corner of one of the rooms here, and they've been very kind because you've been
1: nominated cover. for
2: uh, I haven't been nominated, <laughs> I am actually a member of BAFTA though. Uh, oh, hello. So. Love. <laughs> uh exactly um (laughs) so relatable so relatable um yeah that's really it's really good and it's great to be able to hover and do chats and conversations here and feel comfortable to do so so um yeah uh I just wanted to say that because I am actually an audiophile it really bugs me when I hear different things so yeah I do yeah anyway Um, enough about me it's all about Dennis Lehane and uh here is Phil with the intro
1: Our guest today on Best Sellers has created 14 novels, several of which have been turned into blockbuster movies, Clint Eastwood's Mystic River, Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, and Gone Baby Gone and Live By Night, both directed by Ben Affleck. He's also been a staff writer on The Wire, a writer-producer on Boardwalk Empire, and most recently he wrote and produced Blackbird for Apple TV+. His latest novel, Small Mercies, comes from a very personal place for Dennis Lehane. It's set in the 1974 mandatory school busing scandal in Boston, where the authorities decided the best way to tackle racial segregation was to bus predominantly white kids to mostly black populated schools and vice versa. It led to rioting and violence, some 40 riots over a two-year period between 74 and 76. And I'm delighted to say that Dennis Lehane joins us now to talk about what is, for me, I don't know about Natalie, I won't speak for her, but for me, this is easily my... My book of the year Dennis I read this on holiday in April and were completely blown away by it so I'm so but, glad you, you're on the pod with us let's thanks. Let, let's start in 1974 that was the year of my birth I think you were nine yeah give me your recollections of the 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 busing scandal and um how implicated you personally became in it as a nine-year-old boy
0: well it was um the court order came down only 90 days before the first day of school so um, they had been fighting for nine years um, to get the schools desegregated. And the Boston School Committee, which was made up mostly of people from South Boston, was um, just belligerent in stopping what was the rule of law, which was that these schools needed to be desegregated. And um, then uh, when the when the decree came down, OK, it's going to be busing. It's going to be forced busing. We're going to swap the populations of two schools. Um, one in a predominantly black neighborhood, one in a 100% white neighborhood, then um, then people lost their minds. And um, what you saw on the streets, what I saw on the streets as a nine-year-old was confounding and baffling. And uh, the graffiti alone was stomach churning. I mean, you're in boston which is you know the city on the hill the cradle of liberty the you know the 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 intellectual supposed high ground moral high ground of of not only the northeast but probably the united states that was the reputation and then you would see kkk spray spray painted on walls you would see kill all the n-words you would see n-words stay out go back to africa white power um it was it was stunning, and it all just seemed to come out of nowhere like a, like in the zombie movies where all of a sudden there's just like, you know, I don't know, a strange moss is growing somewhere, and then the next day people are staggering around. And um, I was, uh, I, I th- by that, then it escalated and continued to escalate, and then there was the first day of school, and then there was the nonstop riding, and then there was the Southie Won't Go. Southie Won't Go was a movement that said our children just won't go to school. So they kept all their kids out of school in a boycott, and and they thought it would bring the city to its knees, or bring the state to its knees, or bring the federal government to its knees, and all it did was wipe out the educational hopes and the futures of an entire generation of kids. So it was a disaster on every level, and um, and I think that the one distinction that was really important um, is that you know the book and the book I think makes this distinction desegregation had to happen it had to happen right then it had to happen right there no question um the method by which it happened which was selective force busing um that was the issue and and that was a legitimate issue that some people legitimately protested against but they got swept up and lost in the in the racist melee around them so um i believe that if the suburbs had been part of this if there had been a countywide um desegregation of the countywide schools so we're talking about boston is made up of suffolk county middlesex county if those two counties as opposed to just the city had been involved i think we would have been a beacon for the country i think it would have worked but because the rich suburbs pulled out they pulled out within 60 days of the decree then uh then all of a sudden it could be you know um not in my backyard you know you know we'll force this down the throats of the working class uh whether they like it or not and but it won't it won't happen to us Mm. and that's and that is something that is brought up in the novel as well so i love a novel that makes me
1: go off and do my own research so i did a bit of digging into this and i saw a, a I think it was a path news clip of a parent. she was white, and she said it's nothing to do with the school being black. It's to do with I've got a perfectly good school opposite my house and I don't want to put my kid on a
0: bus yeah that that was so that's that's the legitimate argument I'm talking about. That's the legitimate argument. but because south boston and and the Boston School Committee had played such a um really repugnant game of chicken for nine years they were supposed to be desegregating these schools for nine years in any method they chose chose fit you know every single time there would be a situation like oh we have a black student here who we'd like to place at south boston high school they'd say well we don't have the room and they'd say but you've only got 10 people in the classroom yeah but we're doing construction like whatever it was it was constant so there was it was a wall that had been put up for nine years, and ultimately, they decided to drive a bus through that wall and And that's what you you know that's the uh, when people say, you know, I didn't want bo- busing right yeah well the, the, it got it ended up being your worst last choice because every other good choice was placed in front of you and you rejected it you know so that's un- unfortunately what went down now my father who um you know was an irish immigrant he was a working class guy he and he was not a racist and but he saw this as as another case of the the have the powers that be telling the poor people what they were going to do whether they liked it or not and he would point out to me he would say you see that and it was the expressway and i would say yeah and he'd say on the other side of that is the ocean but you don't even know that i do because when i moved here i could see the ocean but they just dropped that expressway right in and didn't, didn't ask us a damn thing about it because we're the poor neighborhood. You don't see it going through the nice neighborhoods and yes. not in my backyard. Again, not in my backyard, which is a phrase. I don't know if you guys have it over there. But yeah, yeah. Not in my backyard is, is at its essence, a racist phrase. So even if you live in your nice white liberal neighborhood where you go to your, you know, your, your non GMO, processing food markets and you, you know, every other cliche that I I personally embody right now Um, (laughs) You do all those things and you drive your EVs and you, and you do everything politically correct. If you are somebody who would vote against a bus line or a train line coming into your neighborhood, because you don't want certain people coming in, you're a racist.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you you bring this up so well in the book as well. So I I don't want to give any spoilers. um, So I won't kind of necessarily attribute who this comes from. But there was a quote I wanted to pull out, which was no matter what we claim in public, in private, we all know that the only law and the only God is money. If you have enough of it, you don't have to suffer consequences and you don't have to suffer for your ideals. You just voice them on someone else and feel good about the nobility of your intentions. And I think that encapsulated so well like what you were just talking about too. um and that still happens today, which is the kicker, right?
0: yeah, it's it, it's all just a big old mess. I mean, it's like it yes, um we have we have the well-intentioned do-gooders who don't want to put their bodies or their or their or their or their mouths where their where their where their money is or their principles <laughs> are essentially. and then you have, you know, the people who just say, screw it. I just want what's mine. And and I don't care about anybody else. So it's like, like, and and that's the majority of what's going on right now on the right. You know, it's just like we don't care about what's happening to the environment. We don't care what's happening to poor people. We don't care about slaughtering our schools. We don't care about any of that. Just where's my money? Where's mine? Give me my money. That's it. It's a bottom line. That's it. And and then you got the, those are your two opposing forces, which is really sad. And then in the middle, it's just people, and that's what I think is sucks about the the country right now in the world. I think it, it's it's global. You know, is you know we're we're just we're heading to Blade Runner, where there's going to be the people who live down here in the acid rain, and then there's going to be the people who live off world and have AI. robots for slaves you know that's where
2: we're heading it's so freaking bleak it's like i'm not not necessarily disagreeing with you but it's just like i mean and i I would say that in your writing this is not a new theme like you know i can remember reading and then watching the adaptation of shutter island and being like holy fuck Like, but like the subject matter that you kind of tap into when you're writing, yeah. um, you're not afraid to go to those places, which is why I think the books and Small Mercies especially resonate so well. Is that just from a, like kind of like a an angry passion the whole time?
0: Yeah. Well, you know what it is. It's from this. It took me re- writing this book to understand it. It's. I've always had this anger in me and I never understood where it came from. Never. Because I had loving parents, you know, we weren't rich by any means we were working class as hell, but, but we, we were, you know, you came home, there was food on the table. There was, you know, there was two parents in the household. We were, you know, both my parents had seventh grade education. So they pushed real hard for us to get educations. They pushed for us to have college funds, you know, anything they could do. They'd work overtime, triple time, whatever. So I came th- I came from a rough neighborhood, but when I went into my house, I was safe, you know? So what was I angry about? Like, I, I, I couldn't figure it out. And then I realized at nine years old, you're watching people, adults, adults, throw rocks at buses with children in them, and they justify it. They justify it with isms. They justify it with nobody told them to send them in there. They justify it with, well, this is all we got. No. There's literally no explanation. There's no, there. you can't justify throwing a rock at a bus with a kid in it. You can't. And if you can, then your ideology is cancerous bullshit. And everything else that comes out of your mouth after that is also bullshit. So I think growing up at nine and seeing that, from that point on, I wasn't a kid anymore. It just, it it took my childhood. Like, you know, I don't want to make a, too big a deal of it. But that was the bottom line from nine years old on. I was just like, the world is a corrupt and terrible place and nobody knows anything and everybody lies and everybody tells whatever narrative they need to tell to justify their shitty actions. Like that was my worldview. And and it was also, there was a political, I, I remember having a very strong political thought very early, which was, it's in the best interests of the ruling class, to keep the working class fighting amongst itself. And and that's what you see nonstop, you know, nonstop. It's a playbook that goes, it, trans, it transcends ideologies, it transcends countries, it transcends everything. It it's pays not ideology. to
2: educate people, right?
0: pays not to educate them. Yeah. pays to make them think that their real problems are not, oh, the people who are making... Look, I'm not I'm not advocating for socialism or communism, but I'm saying that when you have people making like. I don't know, two hundred and forty million dollars a year uh, for moving little dots around on a computer screen, they're blowing it on yachts and they're blowing it everything. And then there's just people starving all over the place. And we get the people who are starving all over the place to think that they're each of them is the problem based on the shade of their skin. That's that's I mean, there's an evil genius to it. Don't get me wrong it's a playbook that works and it's works throughout history I mean I'm reading right now about 17th century uh, 18th century France in which there was very much in Paris a a, a colorblindness in Paris in late 1800s the late 1700s sorry late 1700s there was a complete colorblindness and and people were threatened by it and it just took a couple of people to say, no, we need some racial purity laws here now. And then they went in, and then within 50 years, there was what you understand would then become the norm for the next 200 years across the globe. But for a moment, there wasn't. And if you see in America, moments of racial progress, massive progress was always followed by massacres. You know, so I don't know, it's just a, it's it's, in the best interest of the people with power to keep the people without it
1: fighting amongst themselves. So that's the historical context to your novel. Um, When we join it, we meet this firebrand of a woman. I want to call her Mary Pat Fennessy. The story is told through her perspective. Her daughter doesn't return home one night, and on the same night that she doesn't return home, a black man is murdered in what's clearly a racially aggravated killing. And I want to ask you with Mary Pat, and again, I don't want to do spoilers. I want people to get the same no, 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 enjoyment no, no. from this. But I want right. to ask you, did, have you pulled off a really great trick there by making us root for someone who's got a lot of the traits you just described? I mean, she's clearly racist. I thought she was racist. Yeah.
0: She's racist. No, she's yeah. racist. Her, She thinks because she's not like <laughs> she's not what I call get off the couch racist. She's not going to like go and throw one of those rocks. Right. But she thinks because of that, well, she's not really a racist. But no, she's a racist. She's definitely a racist. Um, and she's got yeah. the black the black friend at work, so she can't be a racist
1: in her own mind because she's got a black friend kind of thing.
0: She's got a black friend at work. But when she thinks to herself, well, she doesn't have her phone number and they've never gone out together because black women and white women in, in Boston in 1974 didn't do that. Right. So that's how she justifies it. Um but it's it's a um I wanted to create a character who was all of the things and yet I am in. I'm interested in paradox, and I, I think that in the in the best of us is is a capacity for pure evil straight from hell, and I think in the worst of us, shockingly, is you know something. Every now and then, you find something. Not, well, he did. Wish me a happy birthday. You know what I mean? Like if you say something about somebody, no matter how bad they are, you're like, you remember that time you helped me, you know, move my car, like broke down on the road. I mean, you can't be that bad, you know? Um, so uh I I wanted to create a woman who was based on several women I knew growing up. Well, actually have probably a dozen. Um with these project women. They grew up in housing projects, you guys call them estates. Um, and they were um Uh, she was, she grew up poor, she uh, lost a husband, Um, she never had a leg up economically, she got a second husband, he left her because, quote, her hate embarrassed him, and she doesn't understand that at all, when the book begins, and she's hanging on by a thread, she's lost a son to drugs after he came home from fighting the war in Vietnam, she's lost, She now she can't find her daughter, Um, and She is a woman who is capable of going toe to toe in a fist fight with man. She might not win, but she'll make him regret taking a swing like that's That's the point. And and I knew women like this. They were bruisers, absolute bruisers, and they created bruiser kids. And we were terrified of them. Like, you know, and I grew up in a rough part of town. But I remember a buddy of mine, he got jumped. By three girls from the South Boston projects, right? Now we were all tough guys and blah 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 blah, and he got jumped on a subway platform by three girls from South Boston. They beat the shit out of him, and he came back and he told us, and there was no shame to it. We weren't all like you got beat up by a girl. We were mm-hmm. like, hey man, you're lucky you're alive. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, so um, uh, Mary Pat is that type of woman, and she's a bruiser. She's a brawler. She's a, a foul mouth, chain smoking. Um, functioning, alcoholic mess of a human being. But she has this capacity in her to, to want to do good and want justice. And when her daughter goes missing, she goes on a rampage in which nobody will stop her. Nobody can stop her until she gets justice. And that's that I found fascinating i didn't want to take somebody who was good and lily white and a knight you know knight in shining armor and have them go up against the bad guys i wanted it to be somebody who would who would be something that they didn't know how to deal with how do you deal with a mary pat and once she unleashes once it's that whole idea of once you take away everything from somebody you give them nothing left to lose Mm -hmm. then she becomes this formidable force in the novel and she just she will burn the entire house down to the ground if if that's what it takes. And that's that's what nobody was ready for.
2: So, yeah, she's I mean, she's great and awful in equal measure. But as I was reading it, and as you'd expect with some of your writing, a lot of your writing, it's so cinematic too. I don't know what the stage is in terms of possible adaptations for Small Mercies, but I would say that for any actor to play Mary Pat, that is a kick-ass role to play right like I mean, we just still don't see that type of character on screen or in novels that much that has that kind of range from emotional to action and physical as well
0: and you see it when you do see it i find it hard to believe it's just yeah. i i when i see women you know when i see a, a, an un- unbelievably beautiful unblemished woman who's got a body that comes from working out in gyms nonstop. And I see her like kicking her ass on the man, on the big men, you know, I'm like, oh, please, uh, you know, look, I'm, uh, come on, please. You know, like, like I'm not trying to be unpc PC here, but it, that's, it's ludicrous to see like a little tiny live perfectly proportioned without a blemish on her face, woman, kick a man's ass. If I see, Melissa McCarthy kick a man's ass. I'll believe it. I'll absolutely believe it. I got no trouble with that. I, you know, there's certain women who I go, I got no trouble. So when we were thinking about this book, I own the rights to this. I'm developing it for Apple TV. Um, and the names we've discussed, what it keeps coming down to is literally that. Could she, the first time we see Mary Pat on leash, it's, she's getting back talk from her daughter's boyfriend in a bar. And She's had enough, and she just starts beating the shit out of him in the bar, and and then four guys pull her off, and that's not enough because they didn't get her legs, so she keeps <laughs> kicking the guy, and and that's what makes these people so dangerous. Not training, not oh, they went and they studied under you know whatever such and such <laughs> deal. It's the pure inability to stop. Yeah. They will not stop. You have to, there's a line in the book where it's like, he would not stop until a coroner called it. Yeah. Like, that's that's who Mary Pat is. She's not going to stop until a coroner calls it. So um, we, I wanted that sort of force of nature to embody her. And if we can't, wh- whatever actress we ultimately cast, you, you will believe that, you know? Yeah. And it's a short list, you know? Look at... Look
2: I would at, love uh, to see that list. I know you're not going to show
0: that. Well, I, I can tell you one person because she she turned it down because, because the first person I went to and she she did turn it down because um, because it was just too um, dark. I think she just wasn't in the place to do it. And, and that was Charlize Theron. And the reason was because of Fury Road.
2: Yeah.
0: She was missing an arm in Fury Road. And you believed that she could be and she could go toe to toe with Tom Hardy. You had no trouble believing it. No, so, no. From I, what I read, they did, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but, but that's that's what you're looking for. You know, you're yeah. looking for that thing of that. It's something in the eyes. It's something in the just the heart of the human being. It's not in oh, look, they, you know, they with through some camera tricks, it looks like they can spin up in the air and kick you in the head. You know. Mm. Like,
2: But also just to follow up on that briefly, um, we spoke to Joanne Harris a couple of weeks ago about her book, A Broken Light, Mm -hmm. which deals with female rage. Um, And that's, again, something that we don't see written about that much or or developed in as much detail as you've gone into with the character of Mary Pat here as well. And I think that's what I kind of found so just honest and refreshing and way more truthful than so, so many of those stories where they're like, oh, like you wouldn't cross her and you're supposed to just kind of believe That's it. That's enough. But you're like, well, here's why you wouldn't cross Mary Pat. And that's what worked for me. So Mm -hmm. these women, they were still kind of clearly living in your mind all this time.
0: Yeah, because as I grew older, I started to understand their pain. When I was younger, all I understood was their fury and their and their they were scary. And I thought, oh, it must be cool to be them. And then then you get older and you realize, no, that type of of rage comes from poverty from grinding poverty it comes from abuse you were probably abused by your father you're probably abused by your husband um it comes it comes from a a life of diminished expectation at a very young age it's just this is your lot this is how we're gonna live you know and we're gonna and we'll just and we'll just you know claw away claw our way through till we die you know and um, and that I began to feel was was that's how I locked in with Mary Pat. To be honest with you, was what was sad in her. Um, what was what? Where was the little kid? And there's there's a moment early middle of the book. It's my favorite passage. It doesn't it doesn't show up and it would never be able to show up in a film, which is why I love it. I love writing books for that reason. But she thinks about her entire history, and she can a brawling. And she's been fighting since she was four, right? She can remember it. And and then, but she, in the midst of all of that, she remembers faintly this little child looking around at the fire she'd been born into, and she's bewildered. But that was her just before she gets, she just learns to adapt. How do you learn? But nobody's born this way, you know? And then she just has to learn to adapt. And she overcompensates as we say now Um, (laughs) so yeah no she she was the most fun character I've ever written I loved writing her
1: I feel like I want to say at this stage, because we've used words like bleak and we've described a bleak part of Boston history. The, this is not, I didn't find this to be a bleak book. There are not parts of it that are bleak, but there are yeah. parts of it that are funny. There's a puzzle at the center that, that needs solving. There's almost a bit of Denzel man on fire to her when she goes on the rampage. And so there's all these elements that make it such a brilliant, pacey read. I would not want people to be put up by thinking, oh, that sounds no, like hard no. work and Charlize Theron turned it down because it was too dark or whatever. I don't want yeah. people to
0: think, do you know what I mean? No, it's absolutely. Um, It's that um, I knew what I knew what would have, you know, was was tough to play, which is what's tough to play as a woman who sooner or later is going to lose everything. And that's hard, Mm. you know, Um, but to to levit to balance the book, I needed to say, okay, this isn't a book about grief. This is a book about racism. This is a book about the price of hate. And this is a book about a kind of a propulsive narrative, which is. This is a woman who's going to find out what happened to her daughter. And in the midst of that, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of humor. And, and then there's a balanced character who walks in the book about 80 pages in. And his name is Bobby Coin, and he's a police officer. And he represents hope in the book. And he represents, um, he's, he's most of his scenes are kind of mildly humorous. And he becomes her strange ally if only by the phone they they he's investigating the, the death of augie williamson the african american man who died on the plane pl- train platform and he crosses paths with mary pat and instantly likes her he just takes a shine to her and she kind of takes a reluctant shine to him and and they know each other as as irish kids from the wrong side of the tracks that's how they mm-hmm. that's how they lock into each other but she you know. can
1: also go places he can't as a law enforcement officer. I mean, she's kind of almost ahead of him almost all the way through the book, right?
0: Because he has to follow the he has yeah. to he's going up against the Irish mob. Yeah. And the Irish mob at that time, they owned South the Lockstock, South Boston, Lockstock and Barrel. They owned the police, a lot of the police, the key police, and and they had deals with the with the with the FBI. So they were pretty untouchable. And a police officer who was going to go against them was going to risk everything to do it. And so Bobby has to be very cautious because as his si- he lives with his sisters, he has several sisters who he lives with. And as they remind him, you know, it, in, in the movies, the cops always ready to just go up against anything, no matter what. But they're like, you know, it'd be good that you'd have a pension so that you could raise your child. You know what I mean? Like these are realities. It's not just as simple as I'll get killed. It's I'll get fired and they'll take my pension. And then what am I to? And and that's something that Bobby is not corrupt, but he has to be very careful. He has to tread very carefully. Mary Pat yeah. doesn't have to tread carefully. She's the just, bull of the China shop.
2: She is. And just to kind of highlight some of that humor that we were just talking about, this bit made me laugh out loud. This is when uh, Mary Pat's describing her family and you're writing about that. <laughs> and you write, last anyone heard of Bill, he was doing 10 years for a stabbing in New Mexico, which was a surprise, not the stabbing, the New Mexico part. Hot weather always made him irritable, which come to think of it might explain the stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great.
0: <laughs> you know I I, I find um, I find this when I go back to Ireland um, I found this actually hanging out in Manchester one night a long long time ago. Um, there's something about the humor of the working class. The funniest people I ever knew were from Boston. I mean, still to this day, I've never met, you know, half half the comedians in the world aren't as funny to me as guys you could meet at a bar in Boston. And and I think there's something about the the sort of um, I don't know, it's it's there's a lack of sentimentality about the human condition and the humor. So it's just kind of like, yeah, that knucklehead went off and did this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I did want to pay a uh, tribute to that in this book as well. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of offhand humor that comes out throughout the book.
1: Can we hear some? Let's let's dip in and um, have Dennis read us a little bit. Where
0: are we going to join it? Um, I'll tell you what. There's a moment when Bobby drives into South Boston. That's a good that, right. And Bobby is not from South Boston. He's from the next neighborhood over, which you wouldn't think as much. But I was from the next neighborhood over. And so is that Rochester? He, Have I got that right? Rochester. I was in yeah. Dorchester. Yeah. Dorchester, uh, sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um so All right, so this is Bobby driving into Southie to interview a witness. Um uh with his partner. The moment they cross into Southie, Bobby feels a difference in the air. Bobby grew up a oh, only a few miles south in Dorchester in a parish that was wholly white and predominantly Irish, he presumes that in most places in America, a distance of a few miles between two enclaves that share identical ethnic characteristics don't represent assignments, a seismic difference in culture. But crossing the border into south, he always gives him the feeling that he's just entered the rainforest of an unknowable tribe, not specifically hostile, not dangerous by by their nature, but at their heart, opaque. Everyone knows everyone here, They stop one another in the streets to ask after spouses, children, cousins twice removed. Come winter, they shovel walks together, joined up to push cars out of snowbanks, freely pass around bags of salt or sand for icy sidewalks. Summertime, they congregate on porches and stoops, cluster in lawn chairs along the sidewalks to shoot the shit, trade the daily newspapers, and listen to the Sox games on HDH. They drink beer like it's tap water, smoke ciggies as if the pack will self-destruct at midnight, and call to one another, cross streets, to and from cars, and up at distant windows, like impatience is a virtue. They love the church, but aren't really fond of mass. They only like the sermons that scare them. They mistrust any that appeal to their empathy. They all have nicknames. No James can be a James. Has to be a Jim, or a Jimmy, or a Jimbo, or a JJ, or in one case, Tantrum. There are so many Sullivans that calling someone Sully isn't enough. In Bobby's various incursions here over the years, he's met a Sully one, a Sully two, an old Sully, a young Sully, Sully White, Sully Tan, two-time Sully, Sully the Nose, and little Sully, who's fucking huge. He's met guys named Zipperhead, Pool Q, Hot Roast, and Balsack, son of Sully Tan. He's come across Juggs, Nickelbag, Drano, Pink Eye, who's blind, Legsy who limps, and Hansy who's got none. Every guy has a thousand-yard stare. Every woman has an attitude. Every face is whiter than the whitest paint you've ever seen, and then just under the surface, misted with an everlasting Irish pink, it sometimes turns to acne and sometimes doesn't. They're the friendliest people he's ever met until they aren't, at which point they'll run over their own grandmothers to ram your fucking skull to a brick wall.
2: I shouldn't be <laughs> laughing. <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's such a great, um, it kind of makes me want to ask now about your skill as a writer, which obviously has been honed over many books and screenwriting and everything else as well. Is that ability to zoom out? on a community and really show you the context of what's going on, but then zoom in on other passages. So you're really up close with people. So there was another bit that I was going to pick up where you talk about how uh, Bobby, he's just, he's just writing and he says, um, uh, that's too bad. Bobby pats his pockets for his cigarettes, gets a bolt of panic when he realizes they're not there. He looks around wildly, spies them right there on his desk where he laid them about 30 seconds ago. So you have that real immediacy as well as kind of zooming out? Is that something that you consciously try and, Put in like
0: that. No, no, I just well, one of the things that happens in this book is that everybody smokes, you know, because everybody smoked in 1974. So I'm an ex-smoker. And so reading it, I was j- writing it and remembering it. because I remember when everybody smoked that much. And and I'm like, damn, I regret every cigarette I ever had. Like it's just every single one. And then there's that moment where he's sitting at his desk and he goes to Pat for a cigarette, and I and I remembered that feeling you had if you were a smoker when you realized where the fuck, where are my cigarettes? Where am I? Cig- like, I don't have my cigarettes. Oh my God, I don't have my cigarettes. It's like now the way you feel when you don't know where your cell phone is, you know? Um, I was going to
2: say exactly that thing, but I think <laughs> it makes yes. it really relatable because you kind of, you're there with that person, whatever it is that they're missing. You're kind of right there with the action.
0: Yeah. You want to stay um, as present as possible with the action. And then the big thing, I mean, this is something all writers, you know, know and study and then ultimately try to emulate, which is, Specific details, huge, you know, what's the little detail that's going to stick out, that's going to make you feel like you are and the reader, like they're anchored in that in that scene, you're living it. Okay, mm-hmm. that's fine. the guy forgets where his cigarettes are, you know, and then, oh, they're there. Um, so, yeah, it's little things like that. But at this point, I don't know, I, I'm, I very rarely know that I'm conscious of doing something. I just... I, I have an instinct now that I think was honed over the course of 30 years. So a friend of mine, um, uh, the writer, Michael Corita was asking me, where, when did you come up with Bess?" And best is Mary Pat's car. And it's this piece of shit that's held together by like basically duct tape, uh, cooking yarn and a prayer. And that's it. And the tires are so bald. They remind Bobby of a baby's ass. Like that's, you know, so, um, where did I come up with it? I came up with it in the first sentence that it shows up. I just she pulled. I she was driving. I didn't know what she was driving. She pulls up to confront somebody, and I thought, if she confronts somebody and she's just a badass, that's not interesting. But what if she's at a disadvantage? Well, what could put her were you at a disadvantage when you're going to threaten somebody? If you owned the ugliest car on the planet, that would do it, you know. So then I immediately created the ugliest car I can think of.
1: So, what, so what, when Natalie talks about your skill as a writer, what, is it is it possible for you to crystallise? If if people are listening, we get a lot of wannabe writers listen to this podcast, uh, and is there one or two things you could say to them that they need to? You know, do you? Is it just that you are a great observer of people in life? Is it that? Is it much more than that? Is it that you can you know how to create distinctive characters? Is it you know? Is it about plotting? What is it? What is the? If, can you crystallise what it is?
0: No but I can come close.
2: Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, so, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I feel like I, a back to this. i
0: say what I bring to the this. table. I think I bring to the table. There's two things I brought to the table naturally as a writer. You need to at least have one talent. There's got to be, a, are you really good at at, at writing beautiful prose? Oh, okay, yeah, that could be one. Are you really good at plotting? That could be another. Are you really good at dialogue? That could be something else. Are you really good at character? You, really, you know, There's a few things, but if you're not good at one, if there's not one thing you're good at, don't do it. You got to have a building block. It's like y- nobody who becomes a comedian becomes a comedian because people say you're not really funny. <laughs> like somebody at one point said to that person, you're pretty funny. You know, so you've got a base, you've got a building block. There mm. you go. Mm. People were telling me since I was eight, you could write. You know, since I was little, I could I can write. Okay, okay, I'm gonna do some things with writing. That's cool. Um what I had from the beginning. I had an ear for dialogue because I grew up in a place where people spoke vividly, very differently than most other places. So how could I not have an ear for dialogue, you know? And then I was very good at creating fully fleshed characters. And I think that's because I grew up around a lot of characters. I grew up around a lot of people with a lot of paradoxes. Um, After that, every other thing... In my writer's toolbox, I had to learn, I had to work for, I had to practice, I had to strengthen my muscles, I had to get better and better and better. So here's my third talent: I have zero ego when it comes to whatever it takes to be a good writer. I was never trying to become a writer so that people could pat me on the back for being a writer. And that's the difference you see. Usually I see in great students. Great students want to know how to get better. They come in assuming they're not good. Bad students want to know how to get published. That's the difference. Where's your ego? And my ego, right up until when I went back, I started working on The Wire. Here's here's something that's great. I got a job on The Wire. Because David Simon thought it's better to hire novelists than hire TV writers. So he brought me in, working with my friend George Pelicanos. and, And I knew one very important thing. I had six novels under my belt by that point might have been seven. I think I was already Shutter Island. Um, and I knew that while I knew a lot about writing novels, I didn't know shit about writing for TV. And so I said, here I go again. I'm at the bottom. Let's learn again. Now, David and I were talking a couple of years, years ago, and he was just like, you do, you did know that you had written Mr. Gribber by that point. I mean, we were always, you know, like, you knew that, right? And I was like, yeah, I knew that I'd written a book, but I didn't, I didn't know how to write TV. Like, I would... I'm sorry, but I didn't think that was a big cachet was good enough to get me in a room, but it wasn't good enough for me to know how to do what I was doing. And I had to learn and I learned. So my first episode of The Wire, maybe 40 percent of my script made it to the screen. My second was like 70 percent. My third, it was 95. So it was like you learned and and and. If I can say that and say that I learned, I spent my 10 years learning how to be a novelist in my 10,000 hours, and then I went back to zero, and I spent my 10,000 hours and my 10 years learning how to be a screenwriter, screenwriter and didn't feel I really hit it until I was writing a TV show called Mr. Mercedes. And that was the moment when it all clicked. That was 12 years in to writing scripts, where all of a sudden I was like, I got this. You, you if your ego if the ego if the reason you're writing is about the ego of the self then do something else for, for real please do some self actualize someplace else please if it's i about, find it
2: really off-putting as a reader like that sort of pretension i think you can see a mile away and i hate yeah, it
0: if you're lucky lucky enough to get published at that point but i'm talking to so many writers who are out there like it's like why are you doing this do you need to do this do you feel a need to do this if you don't I mean, this is so many other ways to make money, man. Like this ain't it. And and I I'm a writer <laughs> because I don't know any other way to function. It's how I make sense of the world. I order chaos. That's all a novel is. It's the ordering of chaos. That's it. And so um I need that. I need to do that. I know it's false. I know it's artificial, but I need it. And so th- I think those are the those are the things. So if you can park your ego um you got a shot if you can't you might end up being doing okay but you know i i don't want to work with you
1: <laughs> what did it? you write when you were 8 that was so stand out you mentioned something about being 8 what was it you I, I was just
0: 8 I was in 3rd grade and the nuns who never said a nice thing about me told my mother that I little Dennis seemed to be very good at writing like not penmanship they hated my penmanship but my right. writing right. i can't remember what it was and then I kept just doing it and doing it. And I started writing little short stories and 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 I just it it's. um It becomes a form of escape that becomes the way that you see it becomes a complete addiction. And, it, and I think I couldn't write a novel for three years, couldn't no matter what I did. I just couldn't do it after since we fell and It was relatively tranquil in my life at that point, and yet I couldn't write an album. Then I go and I go to shoot my very first TV show that I would run from soup to nuts, Blackbird. And I go to New Orleans at the height of COVID uh, in Southern Louisiana, when we're having like daily lightning strikes, the the heat was just ungodly. Um, We're having every single thing that could go wrong, go wrong. I'm in charge for the first time. Going over budget, over schedule, personality clashes, anything you can imagine. And I start writing a novel. And I wrote the novel while I was shooting a TV show. And it flowed out like I'd opened a faucet.
2: So this because is small mercies.
0: Small mercies. Wow. Because my part of my brain needed to escape. And that's how I function. That's so incredible. That I- running the show and then all of a sudden i was just kind of like everything's crazy what am i gonna do oh let me tell a story
2: so how do you feel i mean it's interesting i think that you can compartmentalize like that but from like the outside perspective blackbirds had raised the views and everyone's like oh it's you know you should watch this it's amazing like taron edgerton's you know phenomenal he is (laughs) he is um so it's kind of interesting to hear the inside point of view, but then the creative path you take to get yourself out of that situation.
0: Well, it was just, um, it was just a release, it was Every you know, it was a release valve. And, you know, you can, you, whatever your release valve is going to be, um, that was mine. I would write, it. you know, to, there's a lot of hurry up and wait when you're making a TV show or a film. So it takes a long time to set up between lighting situations. It takes a long time to set up between camera setups. You know, I'd be in my trailer. There's nothing to do. So it it would be either insane, hysterical madness going on outside, or just boredom. And during the boredom times, I just started to write. And then I would go home at night to this haunted mansion that I stayed in. All mansions are haunted in New Orleans. (laughs) But I stayed in a particularly big haunted mansion. And I would go home at night and I would sit and my wife would be reading in bed. And all of a sudden, I'd just be like writing away and just in a notebook. and, And it felt like when I first started writing it felt like it just had to flow out which is a wonderful way to write and then I knew it was I knew I was onto something magical early I didn't know that it would be accepted the way it's been accepted that's been shocking for me but I knew I was telling something really true and really vital for me.
2: So just to um we'll get back to more some of the writing stuff briefly and obviously not keep you all day but seeing as Blackbird obviously was a bit of a baptism of fire in terms of show running and being at the top of that tier of having to lead everybody as well as it being your project. With this, if you're developing this, what have you learned that you're going to take forward in how that doesn't happen again?
0: Oh, no. All, 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 all films and all TV shows are war. That's, that's a fact. But <laughs> what I learned without a I doubt
2: like the, the way that they always, that, you know, because both Phil and I have done so many like junkets and things over the past and they always pretend that it's not. We know that it is.
0: Oh God, it's madness. Um, <laughs> but if you can, here's the thing. At the craziest that Blackbird got, I do remember. I do remember a moment. I was in my trailer and I was like, I don't think it can get worse. Pretty sure it can't. Um, <laughs> and And I remember thinking, huh, still not as bad as the middle of a book. Right. (laughs) The middle of a book so that all of you who are potential writers, so you understand this, and all novelists know this. There is no hell on earth like the middle of a book. The middle of the book is the valley of darkness. You must walk through it completely alone. And it is where every mistake you made in conception, which is the beginning of a book, will rear its ugly head. And it's where writer's block will happen. And it's where you'll realize, oh, my God, that storyline doesn't work. And that character doesn't work. And then, oh, what am I going to do And I want to quit? And all of that. And you got to go through that 100% alone. When everything went nuts on Blackbird, there was plenty of people in my corner with me. I had allies. I wasn't alone in the foxhole. So comparatively speaking, I find even show running easier than writing a novel. And so... Um, I, the trick is to understand I understood I was fearful of becoming a showrunner because I'm not a micromanager. I don't have a micromanaging bone in my body. And so I was like, huh, oh, you hear about like, you know, Ridley Scott and David Fincher and Alfred Hitchcock and how obsessive they are, you know, or were. And, and uh, that's not me. That's not my jam at all. Um, and I thought, well, my philosophy is going to be I'm going to hire the best person at every single position that i can find and then i'm just going to trust them and i'm going to share my vision with them i'm going to bring them on as a team player in that vision and then i'm just going to trust them to go do their work because that's why i hired them i'm not going to be going into costume and staring over somebody's shoulder and saying i don't like the cut of that am not going to be going to the set designers and going move it's not quite the right sheen on the floor <laughs> like that's not my jam you think that's funny but that's exactly what um ridley scott did his first day on blade Runner. Really, his first day, third-time director, he walks in, he sees the floor, and he didn't like the sheen of it. And so he shut down production so they could redo the entire floor. Now, when you see that floor in the movie, you go, damn, that's an impressive floor. I mean, it's it, it, <laughs> IL Headquarters. They, you know, Harrison Ford walks in, and you look at yeah. that black floor, and it's incredible. Was he right? Probably. Could I do it? No. I'd be like looks good thumbs up you know what i mean it's not exactly what i had in mind but it's pretty damn close let's go um which makes me perfect for tv because in tv perfection is the enemy of speed and and tv you have to shoot fast so um and then what i found out on set was oh people respond to this they don't like the micromanagers oh okay that's nice Then we get a long way. Great. So when we had problems and we didn't personality wise, we only had a few. What we had was weather, weather and COVID, weather and COVID and just shutdowns and shutdowns and shutdowns Mm -hmm. Um, every day. You'd be like at one point when the hurricane hit, Taron texted me, Taron Hedrickson texted me and he said, what's next, mate? Locusts. (laughs) You know, Uh, so but when we did have the even the personality conflicts. It was, oh, they're the outlier because I went and I hired such amazing people and people who knew how to be collaborative that if somebody wasn't collaborative, no matter what their stated reason was, it stood out. You were like, oh no, this is just about you. You're a toxic narcissist. Uh <laughs> And then do you
2: put that in your back pocket and go, I'm going to write a toxic toxic." No, no. no. I no, put so. it in my
0: back pocket and said, remember every characteristic of this human being for when you hire another human being <laughs> and look for this. Um, so that's what I take on to each project from here on out is, you know, and I keep building my team. I based my entire company approach on Paso, which is Clint Eastwood's company, And Clint Eastwood always hires from within and he always keeps the same group with him. And that's what I want to do. That's as much as I can keep my crew together and our next show, which is was set to go forward. We'll see what happens with the strike. Um, But that's got Taron in the lead again. And that's um, me and same producers and several of the same directors and several of the same, same key personnel. So Um, given the small mercies, the novel
1: seemed to be so therapeutic for you whilst you were making blackbird I, i'm reading lots of stuff online and hearing lots of interviews with you where people keep saying so, that somehow this rumor started that this will be your last novel so from the horse's mouth is this your last novel
0: or not i don't know is the only way i can say um here's what happened this book came out like i just discussed with you guys it came out of a really pure place that i hadn't been in a long time um it came out of a need to write it just float out I don't, I'm not, I'm not under contract to anybody for the first time in my entire career. This was the final book that was due to anybody. Right. and it's done. So my feeling is if I write another book, I will, as long as it comes from a completely pure place, I need to write a book. It's not like I'm walking around. What should I write about? What should I write about? Looking at newspaper articles. What should I write about? Mm. Just it pops in my head and it flows. If that happens, I would love to write another book. If it doesn't happen, I'm okay with that too because my need to tell stories is being satisfied by TV. And um, this is a good mic drop. Now, if 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 another one comes along great, but it also has to be really something I'm passionate about, because here's the other thing I've been doing this. This is my 14th novel. I know how rare it is to completely connect, to completely connect. And this book completely connects with the people who read it. Mm-hmm. I have not had a single negative response to this book. on Wood from a critic, from a person, from anybody. So it connected much like Mystic River did 20 years ago. That's a hard follow-up. So if I do write another book, this is, again, I'm in a good place. It will come from an extremely passionate place where I know, okay, this is worthy of a small follow-up to Small Mercy. It's not... I needed to do a follow-up to Small Mercies mm-hmm. and I and I had a diminished result, you know? Nope, it's got to be as captivating to me to write as Small Mercies was.
2: And I think that that flows out in the way that you read it as well, because, you know, if we were to believe everything we read at the moment about some of the difficulties of writing, especially being, you know, a white male, writing a book as well, you cover racism, you cover religion and how religion can be a facade for fueling hatred you kind of go to all these places that are supposedly really and they are I think really difficult and problematic to write about but you do it in such a natural way and it is refreshing and I think inspiring to see that in the way that you've done it so do you kind of feel like you've left it all out there in some cases with this story
0: I knew when I, I I remember writing this book going uh, I, I'd say to my wife several different times I was just like man people are gonna hate this thing man <laughs> you know like I was like I just unloaded you know I just said I'm I'm there's no there's no reason to have an internal governor on this just let it rip just let it be I wanted it to be a perfect document of that time and when people question. Me and I was expecting people would push back. I still haven't heard any pushback, but ultimately that day will come when people say it wasn't that bad. You're making a big, you know, big deal out of it, you're whatever. Really look at the pictures because there's plenty of photojournalistic documentation of that time, of that very specific time of the summer of 1974 in South Boston. And I can show you picture after picture after picture. Well, one shows- of them's on the cover, right? Yes, yes, that's one on the cover. But that same gentleman, Eugene Richards took a series of photographs, including ones that say, kill all the, Mm. and, you know, Mm. uh, an incredible shot. He has a book called Dorchester Days, which has a section on South Boston at that time. There's an incredible shot of a man, a black police officer, talking to two white Southie project women who could be Mary Pat, shouting at him, they're screaming, and in their door is a little placard, and it said, no N-words allowed. And the look on the cop's face is just, you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me with this shit? Like that was there, that was real. And that was not something that you should expose. Children shouldn't be on rocks throwing at them. And nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds shouldn't have to be have to deal with that. You shouldn't have to sit there and just go, What? What, yeah. what? you you know, I mean that. I think was where it got really personal for me. And as I was writing the book and it just kept flowing out and flowing out and flowing out. And we're looking at a resurgence of this in the world right now, a really ugly resurgence of it. And it's like, good Lord. I mean, can't we finally, you know, this weight in the world's turning, all agree that racism's idiotic.
2: Yes, but also I think what, what I like is that you address that void of white people confronting racism and where it comes from, as opposed to just always asking black people about it. You're like, no, this is this is the, where it stems from. It's a it's a white people's issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's um, it's. The, you know, Martin Luther King said ultimately that the I don't know the exact quote, but the context was that the final victim of racism will be the racist. And that's what we're seeing right now. That's what we're seeing in this world. We're seeing the the race, the idea of racism consume itself. But what's going to come out of that is not probably something pretty and Kumbaya and everybody going, oh, yeah, racism is bad. It's probably going to be another terrible epoch. Yay. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> we, we, just, we just continue to be morons. The human race just continues yeah. to be staggeringly stupid. You know, I include myself in that group. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. If you're stupid, I don't know what I am, then off the you know, off the scale. Um let me let me get some book recommendations from you, Dennis. Uh, some stuff that you've read recently. It could be old, new, fiction, non-fiction, anything that you would tell us
0: that we should go and read and enjoy. Anything by Claire Keegan. Claire Keegan's my favorite living writer right now. I've read everything she's written. Um her her novel Foster, which became the film The Quiet Girl um her novel small things like these her short stories everything she writes she writes about rural ireland Ireland, um mostly but not specifically i mean but not exclusive to Mm -hmm. rural ireland in the 1980s but um she's the finest pro stylist i've come across in a long time i love her um otherwise uh i have just I've 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 got a book that's been on my somewhere in my library now for about 10 years, I think about 10 years, called The Black Count. It's about Alexander Dumas' father. It's amazing. It's a a historical recounting of Alexander Dumas' father, who was um, uh, half black, half white. His his father was white. His uh, mother was a slave. And he rose to become a general in Bonaparte's army and then ultimately was destroyed much in the way that the count of monte cristo was destroyed so the inspiration for most of alexander dumas's stuff came from his father who died when he was 5 and and i just it's the most enthralling book um and gives this wonderful picture of french society at the time that's where i got that so yeah, I've just found know. that
1: that's Tom Reese R-E-I-S-S, Tom. and it's called The Black Count, and that actually, according to the cover, was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Biography back in 2013.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just amazing, and it's so it's so fun. Like, I don't, I'm like, I don't write, and I don't like to read books that feel like homework. You know that that's the difference. Like, we're here, sitting here talking about racism, we're talking about social issues, and and so it could sound like very dry, mm-hmm. but. You I wanted to write a book you literally could not put down. Mm. I wanted to write a book that was just just an absolute train, mm. shooting through the middle of, of your consciousness for 200 mm. pages. Mm. And I feel that way about everything I write, everything I read. So what I love about The Black Count is it's so incredibly entertaining. You will fall right into it and just be swept up into this time when in the 1700s, A man rose to become a general in Napoleon's army who was clearly black. 100%. He wasn't, he couldn't pass. His son could pass, but then that became an issue too. The racism that confronted Alexander Dumas the writer in his lifetime. But the father was clearly Haitian black and and became and rose through French society. And that was a world that existed. So when they're saying now, oh, it's so PC to go back with Bridgerton and all this other stuff, maybe not.
2: No, it's just who was ever writing that stuff down was probably a white person, so they didn't include the key details. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh, It's been amazing chatting to you, Dennis. Yeah, Thank it's you so been much. really, really
1: enthralling. Thank you so much. I feel like you've enriched our lives for an hour. And I know that sounds dramatic, but oh, honestly, don't you, I really, really, really feel that. And this book, you've succeeded. The train went right through my holiday for two weeks. Let me tell oh, you. That.
2: Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, and I, was, I found it really cathartic because I did the uh, junkets, so the radio broadcast junkets for Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone, and and various other of your films as well. And, and those you get like five minutes to chat to somebody, so it has been really nice to actually be able to explore fully oh, um, good. the story. Oh, good. So, yeah.
1: yeah good. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you for saying Thanks. yes. We're really grateful. No, no problem.
2: Have you spoken to Dennis Lehane before?
1: No, that was a first.
2: Yeah, he was great. I was so into that chat because I think sometimes when you are, you know, obviously we do our research, we've read the book, you know, we look around, we sort of see what other things have been said around latest releases and things like that. And historically, too. And I kind of didn't really get that much of a sense necessarily of of what to expect. And it was just such an honest and um, I found that really enlightening. Could have chatted to him for ages.
1: I got a, There was a moment about five or seven minutes in where, I don't know, I can't quite put my finger up. but it's almost if you went, oh, yeah, these people love books as much as I do. And and he really kind of just, he almost forgot he was on a podcast, I think. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> well,
2: that would be great if so. I would love that.
1: Um, but, yeah, this book is superb. Small Verses really is superb. And, and, obviously, we always say this to you, always read the book before, the TV adaptation yeah. because it's always better in your imagination i'm sure he'll do a brilliant job on it but things live in a different way in your brain and it's just and also what about i mean i was slightly envious of just how talented he is in as much as can you imagine so let's take your world right or oh, well our worlds are pretty similar aren't they with broadcasting and and what have you and writing and stuff so imagine that you're getting really stressed with your one of your big projects so your solution is to just write a book. And it turns out to be an exceptionally good book. I mean, imagine that being your go-to place.
2: Yeah, well, part of me was like, ah, huh, maybe I should do that more. Like, you know, yeah, I are yeah. really stressed. that's when yeah, I like, yeah, turn yeah, yeah. to the...
1: Turn to the page.
2: Yeah, I quite like that. because I. But I also think there is something creatively in that, you know, whereas I've said to you before, I'm the worst. If I have, if I've cleared a day and I've got an entire day to do writing, I will do jack shit in terms of, you know, I'll do everything else. I'll procrastinate and I'll I'll kind of do all the other things I'm supposed to be doing apart from writing. And then I'll probably have a good burst in like the last hour when I realise that my eight hours is nearly up and I've wasted that time. Whereas I tend to be much more productive if I'm super busy and I know I only have like 45 minutes here or there and that's when I'll write more. And so I, and so I think I've got my a theory on
1: that. And the theory yes. on that is that you and I are both journalists. And so it, it, whether it's um, written journalism or broadcast journalism that you and I mostly have done... Your deadlines are like almost every half an hour, aren't they?
2: Yeah, well, I think yeah.
1: we're used to then responding to that. So if the deadline is like you said, eight hours, if your window is eight hours, you probably do most when the seven hour fifty six is gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: true. It's absolutely true. And I wouldn't say that the the time leading up to that is wasted. So I think you are kind of still percolating over things, or like you're kind of you know you're doing light research or whatever. But the hard graft definitely comes in intense mm. first.
1: Mm so go and get your, your eyes around that book before you uh, get your eyes around the TV adaptation a uh, huge thanks to dennis Lehane. and also it's worth to do to, do some reading around the historical context because i was staggered when what i read about bussing um you know since i picked this book I'm, i thought right wow, so that was really a thing and it was really a thing and and the extent to which it, it the prolonged rioting was really shocking and if you've enjoyed it then please go to kofi k o hyphen fi.com Slash bestsellers podcast and buy us a brew, which a number of people are doing that and which we hugely appreciate. And we will make sure that we're more organized on the next episode and get those people's names and give you a shout out and say Absolutely. thank you properly. So this is yeah. just a tide us over thank you for the now. Thank
2: you, generally. Because Natalie's and in yeah. a different
1: place and I've been in a very dark place. <laughs> which I won't elaborate on
2: (laughs) metaphorically and emotionally but all good Um, we hope you enjoyed this and uh, yeah we'll see you next time